Thanks, Josh. If you don't know me, I'm a shepherd here. My name is James Thigpen. Um, I am honored to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. Excuse me while I get some water. If you know me, you know I'm the kind of guy that hates popular stuff. Yes, that's an understatement. I actively try to hate things everyone else likes. When I was in middle school and high school, my friends discovered, after I discovered many years before, um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Let me tell you, I am over the knights who say knee. I don't care about shrubberies anymore. It's a broken record. Speaking of broken records, can we talk about Bohemian Rhapsody? Bohemian Rhapsody is a song I despise so much that if you turn it on in your car, I will kindly ask you to pull over. I will find another ride. Thank you. I mean, the headbanging, the falsetto, the air guitar... It's, it's cringy, okay? It's cringy. Let's move on. If I'm honest, though, um, there's some scripture that I have felt this way about. John 3.16. It's, it's everywhere. John 3.16. Everyone knows John 3.16. Maybe more people might know Matthew 7.1. Judge not. In my generation, um, people have come to love Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. These are all great verses. It, they are the inspired words of God. You could choose worse passages for your life. But there's one passage that for me has always been the Bohemian Rhapsody of Scripture. Can you guess? Psalm 23. For the longest time, I didn't get it. Why does everyone like this psalm so much? There's some truly epic psalms. Psalm 22, right before it. Psalm 24, the king of glory. Try out 46. We already said 90 together. 110, 119. I didn't get what the deal was with 23. That is until the Lord showed me how much I needed Psalm 23. It was just over four years ago after a textbook pregnancy that our son Ivan came into this world right on God's time, but completely unexpectedly for us and traumatically from a complication so rare that there's almost no chance of it happening in a normal pregnancy. His complications involved Ivan not getting blood or oxygen to his brain for a time we will never know. All of our expectations were shattered as we spent the next six weeks in NICU in Nashville. We didn't know whether or not Ivan would survive. We didn't know whether he would have cerebral palsy. That's what we thought he would. We didn't know if he'd ever be able to eat without assistance or walk or just go to school. We didn't know anything and every day was a struggle. And it was there in the uncertainty and the pain 
and the every hour on the hour of the nurse coming in and taking vitals while we're, all of us are trying to sleep, that the Lord began to teach me from Psalm 23. And he would continue to teach me as only five months later our house burned. Then COVID shortly after. Then watching Kirill's mom slowly die of bone cancer. And then, well, all the suffering that has brought us here to this morning. Today, as many of us are coming in here hurting so badly, we can't believe it. God gives us words of comfort in Psalm 23. And I'll go ahead and spoil it because I have to tell you that in those words, that promise is not that the pain ends here. In fact, the promises we find in Psalm 23 are not so much about our circumstances or where we find ourselves. Not all the pain that we experience will be healed in this life. Not all relationships will be restored. Our circumstances may never improve. But God gives us a promise of comfort. And that promise is that Jesus is our good shepherd. Let's open up to Psalm 23 and read it together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, I come to you asking you to be present with us today. Show us the promises that you have for us in your word. Make them real to us. Make us to believe them. Holy Spirit, please open our hearts and our minds. Please be our teacher and our comforter today. In Christ's name. Psalm 23 really demonstrates that old saying that scripture is like a brook that is so shallow a lamb can walk across it, but an elephant can take a swim. On the surface, the six verses here are simple. They're a beautiful picture of what life is like with God as our shepherd. It's not a complicated Pauline epistle. It's not Hebrews. And yet, Charles Spurgeon's, for example, just one commentary, Charles Spurgeon spends 20 pages in eight-point font exegeting this psalm. And that's just one. I will spend the rest of my life plumbing the depths of this psalm and sucking the marrow out of every verse and every word, and I hope you will as well. But today... I want to leave you with four promises 
four offers from Psalm 23 to give us comfort and hope for today and the days ahead. We'll see that the Good Shepherd is our shepherd, that the Good Shepherd offers true rest, that the Good Shepherd offers true fulfillment, and finally, the Good Shepherd offers himself. So the Good Shepherd is our our shepherd. And this should be shocking. From the very first phrase, this psalm is deeply personal, possibly more personal than any other psalm. We're so used to hearing it that it doesn't even phase us to say, the Lord is my shepherd. But think about this. In other psalms, the Lord is the king forever, or the Lord is in his holy temple, or the Lord is high above the nations. The closest we even get to this might be that the Lord is our fortress and our shield, or a very present help, or near to the brokenhearted. Certainly, these things are comforting. But to say that the Lord is our shepherd is to say, is to claim a deeply personal relationship with the Lord who, when he spoke on Sinai, the Israelites said, tell him to stop talking to us. It's, it's too much. You, Moses, you go up on the mountain and talk to him. This is the same Lord that revealed himself as a pillar of fire to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. This is the Lord whose glory filled the tabernacle, whose presence on the mercy seat was so holy that to touch the Ark of the Covenant was a death sentence. Secondly, this should be shocking because... Not just that we are claiming a personal relationship with this God, but because this God humbles himself and condescends to the role of the shepherd. This psalm, the very words of God given to David, are a special revelation of the nature of God. The God of the flood, the God of Sinai, the God who led the people to victory in the promised land, reveals himself to us as a humble shepherd. There's nothing glorious about being a shepherd. Nearly all of the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all shepherds. You know why? Because they were nomads, because they didn't settle down anywhere. The reason they were shepherds is because they hadn't formed an agrarian society yet. You may remember that when Joseph brought his father and brothers to Egypt, The Egyptians made them settle in Goshen because they hated shepherds so much. By the time the people enter the promised land, shepherding was relegated to servants or the youngest son, as we see with David. They worked and slept in the fields all day, all night, always with and among the sheep, apart from everyone else, and were responsible for the lives of each and every sheep. I don't know when David wrote this psalm. Romantically, maybe it was when he'd gotten all the sheep gathered together for the night. Uh, he pulled out his lyre and, and wrote this song reflecting on his, how he took care of sheep and that the, the Lord was taking care of him. Maybe he wrote it as an old man, surrounded by opulence, having won countless battles and established Israel as a kingdom, having gone through and been saved from his violent affair with Bathsheba and the loss of their son, 
he looks back and sees the Lord's presence in his life like that of a shepherd guarding and guiding. But ultimately, more than this is shocking, this is comforting because of God and himself being our shepherd. And because God himself is our shepherd, we can rest assured that his promises are true and that he will fulfill them and that he is more than capable of taking care of us. But first, we need to address an assumption here that we can't ignore. In saying, the Lord is my shepherd, David rightly recognizes himself as a sheep, a creature that is weak, defenseless, and foolish. He is needy and recognizes it, that it must be unto the Lord that he submits himself fully, that left to himself he will leave the fold, wander into the valley alone, and surely die. Before we can move on to the rest of this sermon, and before I can offer you any comfort or hope, you have to ask yourself, am I a sheep? Do you see your need, your helplessness in the face of suffering? Do you see that you have no hope save in Christ's sovereign mercy? Jesus says in John 10 that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. But he tells those who did not believe, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. There are many blessings and much comfort to be gained by the promises of Psalm 23. But if you are not one of Christ's sheep, nothing I share with you today will be true for you. But you're not without hope. Because in his mercy, the Lord will call all of his sheep into his fold. In his mercy, even today, Wherever you have come from, you are here because he is drawing you to himself. You are being called to be part of his fold. Today, will you hear his voice? If you do, call on him. Cry out for mercy, and he will surely hear you. But for you who do hear his voice, for you who recognize your helplessness and your need, Your good shepherd makes you to lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside still waters. He restores your soul. The good shepherd offers you true rest. First, Jesus, our good shepherd, offers us rest from the storms of life. The common delusion of humanity is that we are in control of our own lives. This is Ever since the, the um, John Locke and the philosophers, and don't even think about that, the 18th century, they messed everything up because we think that we're in control of our lives. And I don't know why we still think that after our shared experience of the COVID-19 pandemic. Why do we even claim to be in control when in a matter of days, all of our comforts were pulled out from under us? Under us, we lost access to groceries, to our friends, to school, to our jobs, to gathering as a church. The economy is still reeling from the effects of the pandemic and is only compounded by the continuing crises that we see. Retirement savings are plummeting. I'm sorry, guys. 
Inflation is out of control. World hunger is on the rise again after we had started to make progress. And somehow we've gotten to a place where even eggs are a delicacy. But Jesus has always been in control. Indeed, none of what we have experienced since then has come to pass outside of his control. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38 asks the question, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? The answer, of course, is yes. It is from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come. As we all sing together, our only confidence in life or in death is that our souls belong to God and that not one hair will fall from our heads outside of his control and his goodness and his love for his children. All the things that have occurred in all of history to God's people, all the things caused by the enemies of God that they have meant for evil, God has meant for good for his people. What is the storm that you're going through? Though we experience loss of friends and family through death, though relationships are ruined by sin, though our hopes and dreams are dashed and destroyed, Jesus, our good shepherd, promises that all things work together for good for those who love God. As Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4.16, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Second thing Jesus offers rest from is the strife of our sin. Obviously not one of us is free from this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as Christians, we know that Christ has dealt with our sin fully and finally. But what do we do with that sin that clings so close? What do we do after having a season of victory over our pet sin? It just rears its head again. When the memories of past sin come and the, the sparks of shame are ignited once more. Jesus, our good shepherd, comes to us. He comes to us and gently reminds us and restores our souls. Remember that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And that we should not lose heart in our struggle against sin, for if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no sin that has not been dealt with. The promise, the offer of the good shepherd is that his grace reaches back into our past and purifies our consciences. It is with us now, enabling us to no longer live to sin, but to live to Christ. And his grace reaches into the future so that nothing will snatch us from the hand of the good shepherd. The third thing that Jesus offers us rest from is the struggle of self-righteousness. 
So maybe you tuned out in that last point because you've got this sin thing down. You may be in a season of victory, and for that, praise God. But watch, watch out, because there is a poison that seeps in as the evil one comes to steal, kill, and destroy. From the beginning, knowing his imminent demise, Satan has sought to taint the works of the saints. Starts with a good deed, a ministry, a cup of water. And before we know it, we start bearing the burden of creating our own righteousness outside of Christ. Though you might be, we might be good Presbyterians, confessing that we have been saved fully by the grace of God and not of ourselves, functionally, we tend to live as if our salvation and our sanctification is up to us. Sure, we believe that Christ saved us, but we functionally believe sometimes that it is by and through our good works that we stay saved or stay in God's good favor. Well, how do I know this? Well, I know myself. Did you hear my introduction? I know the self-righteous problem because I struggle with self-righteousness. Well, how can you identify that in your lives? Well, if you don't want to listen to basically the last sermon series that Scott gave on Jonah, take a moment and read Jesus' parable of the two sons. If you read it and find little in common with the son who excessively spent all of his inheritance, you, have, you might have a place to start looking if you read about the older brother who had a problem with the extravagant grace offered to the son who had wasted everything. Several years ago, I was sitting in a Bible study, not here, not even in this denomination. We might have been discussing Ephesians 2. We were talking about salvation by grace and what that meant. A woman raised her hand and said, um, I don't think that I've done enough. How do I know when I have done enough? I mean, I know I don't, I don't bake a casserole every time the meal train comes around. I, I don't visit the sick in the hospital. The bell rang, the class ended. And this sister of mine, for more than 70 years, was never convinced that she had done enough or that Christ had done it for her. Our good shepherd promises us and offers us freedom from the self-righteousness and the self-made righteousness that we create. He tells us in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The rest offered by our good shepherd in our struggle with self-righteousness is that we no longer have to seek to inflate our own sense of self or cower under a deflated sense of self. Instead, our shepherd calls us by name. He tells us who we are. And that rest comes to us through Christ's finished work on the cross. 
freeing us from needing to earn any additional favor with God, either through pride or penitence. The Good Shepherd also offers us true fulfillment. And that's another wonderful thing about being one of his sheep. Because we are given his grace and his rest, not to just lounge around on the green grass and just keep lapping up that water. We are given his grace and rest so that we may walk in the right paths he has set before us for his name's sake. And it is through walking these paths that we will find true fulfillment. Scott has said again recently that one of Redeemer's mantras is that God loves broken and messed up people, but he loves us too much to leave us in our brokenness and mess. He loves us too much to leave us helpless in the storm, to leave us powerless against sin, to leave us in our own self-righteousness. But it begs the question, where does he take us? The operative word here in the verse that he leads me in paths of righteousness is lead. We can be confident that there is nowhere we are called to go that Christ has not gone himself already. Your version may say right paths, and I think that that does get more at what we're to take from this. Because right and wrong are not only adjectives that describe moral status, but they also describe fitness. Not the Olympic kind of fitness like being in shape, but more like when you wear a shirt and it fits. It's not too large or too small. When I was in middle school, uh, the only thing I really cared about was Pokemon. And yes, kids, Pokemon is old like me. What I didn't care about was shopping for clothes, so my parents, being thrifty people, decided to buy me clothes that I would grow into. At the time, I didn't care. I had my Pokemon cards. But if I look back now, I see that I physically looked as awkward as I was socially. (laughs) The right paths are like this. They are paths that are fitted and proper for us. As we sing in whatever my God ordains is right, he leads me by the proper paths I follow where he guideth. If you didn't know, that came from Psalm 23. We are offered true fulfillment by way of the right paths laid out for us by walking humbly with our shepherd. We read John 14 earlier, but if you start at the beginning of that chapter, chapter, Jesus tells his apostles in one of his final conversations with them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. If you were sitting there, if I was sitting there, I'd be like Thomas, and I'd say, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we even know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. 
And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is, Jesus is telling Thomas and the disciples that he has shown them the way to the Father. It is right and it is fitting for the sheep to follow in paths of humility, paths of love, paths of compassion. But in the end, there is one path prepared for us that we must all tread. It is the path that leads through the valley of the shadow of death. The final thing the good shepherd offers is nothing other than himself. If we had hymnals here, what happened to hymnals? I don't even, when I was a kid, we had them. You could take that hymnal and open it up, and you'd see that in most well-edited hymnals, the hymns are not in alphabetical order. They're ordered by topic. If you look closely at the liturgy Josh prepares for us, you'll see the same thing. We don't sing songs in alphabetical order. The liturgy, that is the order of worship that we walk through, is intentional. It is taking us somewhere. It is taking us from God to look at ourselves after seeing God's goodness, repenting of our sins, and realizing that we can come back to him and that he comes to us. And you can ask Josh more about that if you're curious. In the same way, Psalm 23 is not haphazardly placed in the Psalter. Before we can read, the Lord is my shepherd, we have to read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away from my groanings? What is the point of the comfort of the shepherd if we don't know the pain of the lamb led to the slaughter? This is the same path we as sheep will all walk. We are not promised ease. We are not left in the green pastures and still waters, but we are promised the valley of the shadow of death. But there is beauty in this promise because we aren't simply promised the valley but that we will walk through it and that we will not walk through it alone. This is not the sermon that I planned to preach a month ago when Scott asked me. I had these grand visions of preaching from Hebrews 8 through 11, and it was going to be good, let me tell you. But today I'm not preaching that sermon. Maybe one day I will. Today is the day that many of us here have seen family, friends, and others walk through that valley. It is the valley of cancer. It is the valley of lost homes and possessions, of children seemingly senselessly suffering. It is the valley of marriages dissolving, of dreams crushed, of jobs lost. But friends, the best news of this scripture passage begins in this verse. How can I say that? First, we are told that it is not the valley of death that we walk through, but the valley of the shadow of death. When Christ first walked through this valley, he did not just die, but he rose. He is the living one, as he calls himself in Revelation 1.19. 
He tells us, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Christ has defeated death so that we don't even have to really face it except its shadow, which is powerless before the living one. Second, as we are speaking of Christ, we see that as we walk through this valley, where is he? He is here with me. And not only that, he is wielding his rod and his staff. One is a tool of kindness, the other a tool of strength. The tool of kindness is the shepherd's staff that we may call a crook. It is the gentle tool that keeps us on the right paths. The Lord's discipline is never harsh, and it is never overbearing, and it is always just enough to keep us moving forward. But Christ also bears a tool of strength, his rod, that defends his sheep from the attacks of the enemy. And the resurrected Christ that John sees in Revelation, he has a sword protruding through from his mouth, that his words are final. When he said, it is finished, it is finished. When Christ speaks, creation happens. And it is final and it is true. Third, we are told that we will walk through the valley. We are not left to wander around in the dark, but we are heading through it. We are heading out of it. In his reflections in this verse, Charles Spurgeon says that death is not the house, but the porch, not the goal, but the passage to it. And this is the good news for us who are sheep in Christ's fold, that death is not the end. It is not the goal, but the passage to it. So where is, well, what is the end of it? In the last stanza of this psalm, we find a great exchange. In the first two stanzas, we're speaking from the point of view of a sheep. But after walking through the valley of the shadow of death, something strange and wonderful and miraculous happens. It's easy to miss. The shepherd trades places with the sheep. The life of a sheep in historical Israel was nothing glamorous. What happened to sheep in Israel? Let me tell you, two, well, one in the morning and one in the evening, every single day was offered on the altar before the tabernacle so that the people could even think about meeting with God. This was something to be done in perpetuity. That means forever. Two sheeps, every day, in perpetuity, forever. One time a year, a sheep was offered as the Passover lamb. It had to be the best sheep you had without blemish, no broken bones, nothing, and you had to slaughter it and eat it. And yet, our good shepherd becomes our Passover lamb. Sacrifice that we may be sprinkled and made clean with his blood. In this great reversal, the sheep are put in the shepherd's place to eat a feast prepared in the face of our enemy, in the face of death. 
We feast because we have nothing to fear. Death has been defeated. The valley is not the end. The end is the house of the Lord where we will feast forever. Anointed with oil, an honor reserved for kings, our cups overflow. We have more than enough. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord, not as sheep, not as servants, but as sons, inheritors along with our Savior. Ephesians 2.6 tells us that God raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places with him, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Friends, right now we, we weep. We weep for the loss of those who have gone before us. We weep for the lost relationships. For the ubiquitous and ever-present pain and suffering we experience. This week, I, I don't even know how to describe this week. It was one of those weeks that every single day something else was happening more pain compounding and compounding. But it will not always be this way. Our good shepherd is returning. Your pain is not wasted. When he returns, he will make all things new. Hear the trustworthy and true words of the Apostle John from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you even without words for the pain that we experience, the sorrow that we now find ourselves in. But though we come speechless, you do not, because you offer that word of comfort, that you are our good shepherd, 
that you have gone before us, that you have placed us with you in the heavenlies. We thank you that you are our shepherd and that you are near to the brokenhearted. Help us each day to cling to these promises, to know and believe that they are trustworthy and true because you have spoken them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.